Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. We continue our series, God's Providence, today. So turning your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 11, verses 1 to 6, as Dr. Newfeld brings us application number three, live by faith. Years ago, I had a marvelous afternoon with a local university professor. In order to satisfy his own intellectual curiosity, and since he had no Christian background, he thought it might be interesting to talk to a Christian pastor to to find out what he believes and what he thinks is the definition of faith. And, And so he called me out of the blue. And he wasn't sure he'd be accepted, but he was delighted, and and I was delighted to spend a couple of hours just talking together. We talked about a lot of things, but at one point he said, you do believe in faith. And I said, well, I don't. I said, I believe in God. I said, you see, to say I believe in faith, well, that's a redundancy. It's like saying, do you believe in believing? I said, there's not much content in that question. Faith needs an object in order to be meaningful. And he then said, that's interesting, but I want to pursue a different line of thought. And so he asked his question in another way. Is it true that for you, faith is about those things for which there is no evidence? I asked him where he got such a definition of faith. And and he told me that as a general rule, that's what he understood the term to mean. And to the most part, that's how his colleagues understood it as well. Well, I told him that I believed in an unseen world and That's to say, I believed in things that were not accessible to my five senses, but I said, that still leaves the question of why I believe that. I told him there were intellectually credible and intellectually compelling reasons for me to believe in these things. And so, in short, the answer is no. I do not think that faith is about things for which there is no evidence. In my view, believing in things in which there is no evidence is akin to believing in the tooth fairy. There's a world of difference between faith and fantasy. Well, he engaged immediately, and so he said, well, we're both driven by evidence then. And and on we went until we talked about the cross and the resurrection and why I believed in those things. As I said, it really was the kind of a conversation that I wish I had every single day. Uh, That was good, but I've reflected on that conversation since. I wonder how many people think of faith in that way believing in things for which there is no evidence. You see, I think there are a great many people who think of faith that way. I mean, for them, it doesn't matter what you believe, just so that you believe it sincerely and that you become a better person because of it. At least that's how a great many people think about faith. Now, today's message is another installment in a three-week series on the providence of God. And since I'm coming to the end of the series, I've been talking about application. What difference does a healthy biblical view of providence mean in everyday life? And so far, I've reflected on providence as it relates to fear, and then yesterday, providence as it relates to joy. And today, I want to tie together the relationship of providence to your faith. But before I make that connection, I want to, if I can, define faith. You know, when I say Christian faith, what is it that I'm saying? You know, I think that the Bible gives us three different aspects of faith. Aspect number one, faith involves knowing and believing a group of truths. So what do I mean here? Well, let me reference Jude verse three. And there we read, 
Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. So notice here that faith is not a verb, but it's a noun, and it's a noun with a definite article in front of it, the faith. And since Jude says that it is necessary to contend for the faith, we have to assume that there were those who were either attacking the faith or redefining the faith or adding to the faith. I mean, after all, Jude says the faith has been once for all given. I hope you see. Faith here is used to define a corpus of Christian belief. What is it we believe about the Bible? What do we believe about the nature of God? What is it that we believe about Jesus, about the meaning of the cross, about his claim to be fully God and fully man at the same time? What is the incarnation? What do we believe about salvation? Is Christ's death a substitutionary atonement? Well, yes, it is. What do we believe about angels and about demons and about sin? What does it mean to be human? What is sin? What is judgment? How are we forgiven? How do we grow in holiness? What's the meaning of baptism in the Lord's table? What do we believe about the end of history, the second coming of Jesus? You know, all of these things are what we might call propositional truths. So deny these truths and you deny the faith. And yes, it does matter what you believe. These things are not about how sincere you are. They're about whether you believe these truths once and for all given. And when it comes to these things, some of them are primary and some of them are secondary. Let's say you disagree with me on, let's say, the actual timing of the rapture. Well, that's hardly significant enough for us to break fellowship. But let's say you disagree with me that we're innately sinful and in need of the cross. Well, that is significant. You see, the first aspect of faith is a group of truths which we affirm together. You're not in the faith if you don't affirm these things to be true. And on that basis, no Christian will ever say, it doesn't matter what you believe just as long as you're sincere and it makes you a better person. I mean, to say that is the very opposite of what we mean by faith. Faith has an object. It is confidence in what God has said about himself. That's the first aspect of faith. Now, the second aspect. I might call this an inner conviction of the truths of what the Bible has said. And I'm going to here reference Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. There we read, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Now in this passage, faith is an inner certitude of the things hoped for. Think of it this way. You know, there's an old stage play years ago, a musical called Oklahoma. In its most famous song, we hear the words, Oh, what a beautiful morning. Oh, what a beautiful day. I've got a beautiful feeling everything's going my way. You know, for some people, that is what faith is. They are glass half full people rather than, you know, glass half empty people, kind of optimistic types. But please notice that's not what Hebrews says. When Hebrews says faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the Greek word for assurance is the word hypostasis, which can also be translated as confidence. That means that biblical faith is not grounded in wishful thinking or a personality of positivity. Rather, faith is an inner, settled confidence. The writer of Hebrews uses the word hypostasis two other times in his book. The first is way back in chapter 1, verse 3, and there we read of Jesus. He is the radiance of the glory of God 
and the exact imprint of his nature. Now, that word translated as nature is our word hypostasis. In context, hypostasis means that the Son is identical in substance to God, or what is essentially true of God is also essentially true of Jesus. And so we can translate the word hypostasis as essential nature or essence. Now go back to Hebrews 11 verse 1. Faith is the essence or the true nature of what we hope for. Now stay with me. Don't let your eyes glaze over. I'm about to say something very important, so please be patient. The next time we see the word hypostasis is in Hebrews 3 verse 14. And there we read, For we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Now, that word translated as confidence is, again, our word hypostasis. Holding to your original confidence means that you are so sure of Christ that you're ready to persevere through any hardship and never let go of him. That's what's meant there. Now, let's put this all together. If faith is the essence of what we hope for, or if it's the confidence of what we hope for, it means that faith grabs a hold of something that is hoped for as if the confidence itself is as real as the thing that it hopes for. Do you understand? There are two realities here. One reality is what we hope for. Exoneration at the last judgment, heaven, seeing the face of God, eternity of unending joy. We, we hope for these things. These things are real and they are yet to come. But here's the key. The confidence we have in these things is as real as the things that we hope for. Think of it this way. Let's say someone promises you a million dollars. Well, I sure hope he delivers, but, but who knows? Now, let's say this person says, well, look, the check's already in your bank account. You go online and there it is, a $1 million deposit. Now, it's not, I hope he comes through. Rather, listen, I have proof. My online account shows me it's already there. Now, you might not have touched the money, you might not have spent it, but you have a hypostasis, a substance that reflects a genuine reality. And that's what faith is. But how? Well, stay with me, it gets fascinating. Do you ever find yourself wanting to spend time with the Lord in His Word, but don't seem to find the time? Well, here at Back to the Bible Canada, we understand some days are hectic and challenging. And that's why we would encourage you to check out our Back to the Bible Canada Bible Minute podcast. Each episode contains a one-minute audio Bible teaching message from Dr. John Newfeld, with new episodes Monday through Friday. These are perfect for those moments when you're seeking spiritual encouragement, but time is short. So you can download the Bible Minute podcast wherever you listen to your podcasts or visit backtothebible.ca slash apps. For more information, give us a call at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. And thank you to all those who make Bible teaching resources like the Bible Minute available through your gracious gifts. All through Scripture, faith is defined not as something we generate, but rather it's something that's given to us by God. You know, whether it's John 6, verse 65, where Jesus says, no one can come to me unless the Father draws him, or Romans 12, verse 3, which says that God gives to each the measure of faith. 
But however we understand this, in some mysterious fashion, every believer has a deep, settled conviction that simply can't be explained in terms of, well, I I just choose to believe. Rather, it's explained in this way. I find in myself a deep, abiding confidence in God and in what he has promised. That's what faith is, says the writer of Hebrews. It's a reality, it's a substance, and a deep confidence that exactly corresponds to the things that have been promised. Now, I know it's hard to explain this matter to someone who has no faith. I mean, they hope for something, but they have never grasped the substance. But those who have come to faith, those who have come to believe, have a substance. And so we've looked at two aspects of faith. What does it mean to truly believe? And how is our faith impacted by a doctrine of providence? I've said that in the Bible, there are three different aspects of faith. The first is the content of our faith. It's what we believe. And the second is the conviction of our faith. That is a deep abiding confidence that lives within us and it's given to us by God. The third aspect of faith is surrender to Christ. It's the willingness to confess our own sins and humble ourselves and surrender to Christ as our Savior and Lord. You know, in Matthew 16, 24 to 25, Jesus is speaking about what it means to be his followers. And the passage says, and Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. That is, Jesus called his disciples to abandon everything. Following him was an act of self-denial. So following him means that we must surrender what we might want for what he would want. It's to call Jesus King and God. It's to call him Lord and to say, not my will, but yours be done. And that's central to genuine faith. Now, I know some have objected. They say this is not saving faith. We're saved only when we believe that Jesus died for our sins and when we trust him unto salvation. For them, the act of surrendering everything into the hands of Jesus is important, but it's not necessary unto salvation. But listen for a moment how the Apostle Paul understood the matter of salvation. I'm reading now from Philippians 3, so I'll start in Philippians 3, verse 8, B and following. There Paul begins by saying, For his sake, that is, for the sake of Christ, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ. Let's stop there and consider what he is saying. You know, in his world, there was a radical shift. Before his conversion, he counted the value of things in a different way than he did after his conversion. So before his conversion, his status as a Jew counted. His status as a Pharisee counted. His track record of blameless, legalistic righteousness under the law counted. I mean, those were the things that were of great value to him. And then came his conversion. He said, those things that used to matter so much now seem no more than manure to me. They're rubbish to me. The only valuable thing left in the world is that I might gain Christ. So let's go on to read, that I might gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Now, here's where we get our familiar language of saving faith. We no longer trust in ourselves. We we trust in Christ for our salvation. That's exactly right. Our righteousness is not our own. 
we'll not approach God on our own righteousness. Rather, we come before him based upon the merits of Christ, his righteous life and his substitutionary death. And that's how we are justified by faith. We trust not in ourselves. We trust in Christ and in his cross. And if you think about our aspects of faith, faith certainly involves believing content. That is, we believe that Christ died for us, and it involves a deep, inner, settled conviction. That is, that he saved me, even me. I am covered by his blood. My sins are personally forgiven. But let's keep reading Paul in Philippians 3. After he tells us that he views his own keeping of the law as rubbish and that now he trusts fully in Christ, listen to the next line in verse 10. That I might know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. Ah, here we get back to Paul's changing value system. Everything that he once thought was important now seemed like rubbish to him. Indeed, the only thing that matters is Christ. And furthermore, Paul wants so to be identified with Christ that he wants to share in Christ's sufferings. That sounds so similar to Jesus who said that in order to follow him, we must deny ourselves and pick up our cross of suffering. Indeed, no faith is complete until we add to it that aspect of surrender. Now, among many people in the world, the surrender that is required is immediately felt. See, I know of a great many people who, when they came to Christ, they were thrown out of their families. You know, I recently heard a story that, that happened while I was pastoring, but, but I didn't know of it until now. One of my fellow pastors was getting ready to baptize a number of people, and, and the service was going on, and this pastor was in the back with a number of baptismal candidates. And as they waited to come up onto the stage, one woman told him something that she had not told him before. She had said that when she came to Christ, her family was unsettled, but they were willing to make peace with her conversion. They said, you can believe in Jesus, but if you ever decide to get baptized, none of us will ever have dealings with you again. But she'd read Jesus' commands, pick up your cross and follow me. And she also read the command, repent and be baptized. And because she believed, because she had faith, she surrendered, not my will, but yours be done. And what her family threatened, well, they actually did after that. After this woman was baptized, several years later, she saw her mother in a grocery store. They had not spoken since that time. And her mother simply turned her gaze from her and walked away. Now, some of us might be staggered to know how great is the surrender to Christ that so many of our brothers and sisters do all the time. And that's why if you know someone like that, you've got to enfold them into your family, both your immediate family and your church family, and provide for them that fellowship. But, but let's now make the connection between faith and providence, the God who sustains all things, the God who not only does all things for his glory, which he does, but also for our long-term good. You know, when following Jesus costs us everything, it's of great comfort to know that all of this stuff isn't accidental. God has arranged this for his loving, long-term care for us. The sure knowledge that God will arrange every detail so that in glory, he will maximize our joy so that we will say with Paul, these momentary light afflictions are earning for us an eternal weight in glory. But you can go through these temporary afflictions knowing that even the afflictions themselves are carefully orchestrated by the God who loves you. Let me use one more example. One, as I'm recording this message, is very contemporary. 
This summer, the government of Canada has mandated that in order to get funding for any summer program that may involve youth, the applicant must affirm the right of a woman to have an abortion. That's to say, no government money unless one checks the box that affirms this as a right. A great many churches that have used this funding in the past, either for summer camps, kids' day camps, other programs, and from my vantage point, you know, I think government funding always has problems. Well, you might disagree with me on that, and that's okay. It's, it's not a test of Christian conviction whether or not you get government money, except now it is. There'll be a number of Christian organizations who will wonder whether they can carry on their programs if this money is denied them. And here, our faith gets combined with the understanding that this is all a part of the providence of God. If you give up government money and surrender to Christ, well, that's an act of faith. You must believe that God has sustained this present situation for your long-term and maximum joy. See, no matter what it costs you to follow Jesus, the doctrine of providence tells you that God has arranged that cost for you and that as you surrender to Christ and share in his sufferings, God has arranged this, even this, for your long-term good. So be confident in the providence of God and use that as the impulse to surrender all in an act of believing. John, I tell you, this whole idea of surrender is something that's really close to my heart and something I've struggled with as well. You know, I think of that old song, All to Jesus, I surrender, all to Him I freely give. I think what's important for me about surrender is surrender really isn't about giving up as though there's nothing to do. Surrender is really giving over to God so He might use you to His glory. Yeah, isn't that something? I mean, for some of us, you know, this, uh, you know, the let go and let God kind of a thing that... I mean, there's a truth to it, as you and I know. I mean, you, you have to, in the end, stop being self-willed and let God have everything. But at the same time, you know, when Paul talks about suffering the loss of all things, counting everything as rubbish, I think the things that we cling to in this world, we're not going to have forever anyway. So the surrender to Christ is this beautiful action which says, Lord, if following you costs me everything that I hold dear in this world. It's a small price to pay. These momentary light afflictions are earning an eternal weight in glory, as Paul says. So I, I love as well as you this idea of surrender. And like you, I feel like I'm a bit of a, a hypocrite in saying it because I haven't always done it, but it's a beautiful thing for believers to do. Thanks so much, John, for your message today. And remember to join us right here tomorrow at Back to the Bible Canada where we teach the Bible. If you love reading the weekly blogs from Dr. John and Company, then you won't want to miss out on Back to the Bible Canada's bi-monthly Truth in Life magazine. In it, you'll find articles from Bible teacher Dr. John Newfeld, Laffa Gaines, Phil Calloway, and other incredible guests, all with excellent, biblically-inspired insight. Not to mention the stunning images and visuals. Here at Back to the Bible Canada, the aim is to provide resources without barrier, to help enrich your walk with the Lord. That's why Truth and Life Today magazine is free to all who ask. To subscribe to the Truth and Life magazine and receive the next issue delivered right to your door for free, just call us at 1-800-663-2425 
or visit backtothebible.ca slash magazine. And thank you. It is due to the support of generous listeners that Back to the Bible Canada is able to produce and distribute Bible teaching resources like this to all who ask.